and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. If you're making notes and you like titles, I've called this message Love and Judgment. You know, without any doubt, we have seen some incredible things so far in the Gospel of Luke. We've seen some incredible things about Jesus. We've seen his birth, we've seen his childhood, we've seen his baptism and his temptations. We've seen by the grace of God how he has preached with authority, how he's rebuked demons with authority, how he's healed sicknesses with authority. We've seen him time and time again performing incredible miracles, all proving again and again that he is the Messiah. He is God incarnate. He is the one the whole world has been waiting for. And now we see him at the base of a Galilean mountain preaching to the disciples and the crowds. The newly found disciples, the 12 that he specifically chosen upon which he will build the church. Other disciples then gathered around them. And then people from all over Jerusalem and Judea and, and Tyre and Sidon all gathered around her, all leaning in to hear the Savior preaching. And my friends, I want you to imagine the scene this morning and I want you to imagine that you are there. That you are looking Jesus in the eyes. You are hearing his words this morning because in reality, you are there. And I want you to imagine this morning that he's talking to you, that he's called your name, that he's called you to come and follow him and how he's going to talk to you about what that means and what that really looks like. I want you to imagine that he's called you in that way and that he's talking very specifically to you because he is. We're about to be addressed by God incarnate himself, Jesus Christ himself. And this then is the word of the Lord. We're going to read from Luke chapter 6, verse 27, through to the end of verse 42. This is what it says. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, Do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, 
But everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brothers, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take out the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I I do pray, would you help us this morning? Would you help us to be focused as we lean into this conversation, even in our own homes? As we listen in to Jesus, the Savior of the world. Father, as we listen in to him this morning, teaching us. Oh Lord, would we be attentive to your word? Would we hear your voice? And Lord, would our lives be changed as a result? In Jesus' name, amen. You know, there are certain lessons in life that you simply never forget, aren't there? Certain lessons that you remember where you were and how old you were and when they took place. I remember one such lesson in my life. I was eight years old and it was a lesson that was given to me by my father. You see, it would appear that my brother Andrew had been having some tough time at school. We were both in the same school. And there was one particular break time when I did indeed notice that some kids seemed to be having a heated conversation with my brother. The challenge was I had a heated game of soccer to attend to, so I carried on playing with that and I thought he'll be fine. But when we got home that evening, my brother was crying and as my dad was inquiring as to what had taken place, it appeared that he was being picked on by some people in the school. And so my dad looked at Andrew and he said, Andrew, where was David while all this was going on? And he informed him that, well, he, he was right there. And then he walked past to go and play soccer with his friends. And my dad took me aside and he made it clear to me in no uncertain terms. You must never do that again. Because families stick together. Families are loyal to one another. Families stand side by side. And when we're being picked on them, we stand together. We may fight each other at different times, but we always fight for each other. Families stick together, son. I was eight years old and it's a lesson that I will never ever forget. In some ways it became a really self-forming and self, self-important self lesson right there that I would treasure still now at 45 years old. Families loyally stick together. There are certain lessons in your life that are burnt into you as with a hot iron. And right here I believe in this chapter in this text we have one such lesson that the father himself wants to burn into us as with a hot iron because what we have here my friends is simply this a most important lesson on the disposition of christ's followers towards others what it really looks like then in disposition as we seek to follow jesus christ as our lord and savior what it looks like and what we're called to have in disposition toward others. See, as we saw a few weeks ago now, this kingdom of God is indeed completely upside down to what we would naturally think it to be, isn't it? It's just so very different to what we would have anticipated. And so it's very different to the prosperity gospel, for example. Very different to health and wealth. That's not promised as part of this kingdom of God. It's very different to that likewise it's very different to this kingdom of the world 
It's different in the way it operates. It's different in what it values and praises and recognizes as sources of joy. No, this kingdom of God is completely upside down to the way the kingdom of the world operates. And likewise, what we discover here in this text is that our disposition towards others as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ is also to be so very different. And my friends, I really believe the Lord wants to burn this lesson into us as with a hot iron this morning. I believe it wants it to, wants it to be life-changing and life-forming and life-defining for us. And so I have two points this morning, two points that unpack this text, two points that I think are clear as day in the way Jesus is talking. All that help us see what our disposition is to be as we follow Jesus Christ in this upside-down kingdom. And so two points, and here's the first. Number one, our disposition, number one, as Christ's followers, we are to love our enemies. That's where the lesson begins. Look with me at verse 27 and 28. It says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you now this is indeed a shock but it is clear as day in what jesus christ is calling to us here you know the word that he uses here for love is the word agape in the greek language there are many actual different words for love and they all mean slightly different things and we don't think that in the english we just think well love is love but no in the greek language there are different types of love and agape love in particular is a love that is not motivated by the merit of a recipient, but is instead a decision of the heart from the giver. It is, if you will, love by choice. It is choosing to love. It's not a Hollywood love that, oh, I really like that person, therefore I love them. No, this love is whatever they are like, I am choosing on my heart that I will put my love on them. I will show affection to them. I will love them and what is remarkable that in this text is the object of that agape love is our enemy those that we've already seen in verse 22 are those that hate us and exclude us and revile us and spurn our name we're to love our enemies those that may hate us maybe in part because of the way we're living for jesus christ and maybe they just hate us for other reasons But any which way we are called by the grace of God and for the glory of God to love on them. And Jesus unpacks then in the remaining part of the verse what that is to look like. He says, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who abuse you. I mean, it's so unnatural, isn't it? That's not a natural instinct. So somebody who hates me or wants to stand as my enemy or oppose me that I want to bless them or pray for them or love on them. And just when you think it couldn't get even more bizarre, Jesus then illustrates for us in verses 29 to 30 what that love is to very specifically look like. Look with me at verse 29. It says, To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. For the one who takes away your cloak, Do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And for the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. 
You know what Jesus Christ is describing here is so upside down to the way the world naturally thinks, isn't it? This is so counter-cultural and counter-instinctive, I believe, even for us, is it not? See, in ancient times, there was this idea that, quite frankly, you slap me and I will break your neck. That's what we will do. There was this idea that you take my cloak, I will chop off your hands. Or you don't give back to me what I own, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to come around with the boys, we're going to have a chat about that. Because I'm going to help you see that that's mine and I'm then going to demand it back. You know, in ancient times, that is the way people operated. If you had been wronged, then you would retaliate, you would seek revenge, and you would escalate. You think you're going to hurt me? You wait and see what I'm going to do to you. And in truth, in the world today, not a lot has changed, has it? The stock and trade of the day, if it's when we are wronged, we retaliate, we seek revenge, and we seek to escalate the matter. You think you've hurt me? I'm going to hurt you even more. But what Jesus is talking about here is a new way of living, a new disposition, indeed a new love ethic. And so somebody strikes you on the cheek, then go ahead and show them the other cheek. You know, it's very unlikely, I think, that Jesus is talking very specifically there about physically being hit across the cheek. Later on, actually, in this very same gospel, he talks to us about the importance of self-defense and the importance of fleeing evil. Now, I think what he's talking about here is verbal insult, the backhanded comments that we will be on the back of at different times in our lives. Backhanded comments that come from people that hate us or revile us or want to abuse us. And when those comments come, let's be honest, they can be painful. And he's saying in that moment, don't retaliate. Don't seek to give them revenge. Don't seek to escalate this matter and do to them what they're doing to you in this moment. No. No, rise above it and show them the other cheek. Show them grace and mercy. What about the one who takes your cloak? Maybe they take advantage of you. Maybe they're poor. And so they do need help, but they have honed in on you. They're looking specifically for you and they're taking advantage of you again and again and again. And it can make you angry. It can make you bitter. How dare they keep coming to me and looking for money in this way? Well, Jesus says, don't retaliate. Don't get angry. Give them your tunic as well. Just bless them. Even if they are taking advantage. That doesn't mean we can't say no. That doesn't mean we can't talk to them where it might be wise to actually help them grow. Wherever possible, just bless them. Or what about the one who borrows off you? They maybe do it in a way that is dishonest or uh, devious or disingenuous. And it makes you angry. They borrowed it. It never looks like they were actually planning to give me it back. How dare they? I'm going to go around their house. I'm going to give them a piece of my mind. Jesus says, no, don't, don't do that. Don't demand it back at all. A man's life does not consist in his goods and his possessions. Just let it go. Love them and bless them. Don't let it revile you to them. Rise above it. And don't demand it back at all. See, the way we are to dispose ourselves in heart towards our enemies, towards those who hate us and we're finding difficulties with, is so different to the way the world recommends we are. It doesn't speak of retaliation and revenge and escalation. It speaks of grace and mercy and kindness. And Jesus, in verses 32 to 36, I think the dog's got a few things it wants to share with you in this moment. Thanks, Lydia. In verses 32 to 36, 
Jesus then explains very clearly why it is, what the motivation is as to why we should be disposed to loving our enemies in this way. And it is profound. Look at me at verse 32. It says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful then, even as your Father is merciful. Oh, my friends, that statement from the Lord is truly profound. If all we do is love those that love us, if all we do is good to those who are do good to us, if all we do is lend to those who will naturally lend to us, then what good is that? In behaving like that, we're just behaving like the world. Everybody does that. Hitler, Osama bin Laden, Stalin, you name, the list goes on. Everybody operated like that. I will love you, you love me. You do good to me, I will do good to you. You lend to me, I will lend to you. The world understands that. They don't see anything different in us if that's all we do. But if we love our enemies and we show good to those who hate us, then in that moment, we will have the opportunity then to show to others the mercy and grace and kindness of God Most High Himself. In that moment, we will be able to imitate to others the mercy and grace and kindness of God that we ourselves have received. And my friends, what a profound opportunity in life then this act of kindness and love truly then gives us, doesn't it? See, without a doubt, for each and every one of us, we have been on the end of some amazing grace and mercy and kindness from our Lord, haven't we? You know, when people oppose us and when people are our enemies, I think often we forget this. The inner lawyer comes out and all what we want to do is have a go at them and go after them with all our might and forget what has actually happened to us in our life. But when we remember the grace and mercy and love that we are on the back of, I think it changes everything. That's why in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1, 2, 3, Paul takes us on a trip down memory lane. This is what he says. He says, as for you, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. He reminds us that church, you and I, this was our story. We were opposed to God in our sin. We were dead in our trespasses. We freely followed the prince of the power of the air. We lived exactly like the world lived. We lived in opposition to God. We were not interested in God. We were by very nature an enemy of the Lord. We rejected the king, but just took the kingdom. And we didn't want anything to do with him. 
We were by nature then objects of his wrath and we were opposing him as his enemies. And you and I at some time in our life were all like that, an enemy of God himself. But the very next words we read is, but God. God did something in that. He came after us in love and mercy and grace. He showed us such profound kindness, did he not? Because when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Romans 5 verses 6 to 10 says it this way. It says, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled, Shall we be saved by his life? My friends, while we were his enemies, while we were disposed to opposing him, God sent forth his son. In grace and mercy, he came after us on the greatest rescue mission ever told. And we are without doubt the recipients of his abounding and amazing grace and mercy and kindness. And what Jesus wants to help us see here then, as as recipients of that mercy and that grace and kindness from God himself, we should now have that disposition of grace and mercy and kindness towards others, even our enemies. In just the same way, he caught us with grace and mercy and kindness when we were his enemies. Without doubt, we have been on the end of such loving mercy and kindness and so without doubt we have now an opportunity to imitate God most high to others and reveal to them the same mercy and grace and kindness that we have been on the back on ourselves you see it's as we do that my friends that others as it says there verse 37 that others will see that we are children of the most high God it doesn't mean in the way that it's written there that we'll actually be becoming children of the Most High God. We are children of the Most High God. What he's helping us see is that others will see that we are children of the Most High God. We're actually operating in a way that is different, that will cause people to go, what's up with that? Why are you showing kindness to somebody when they're just abusing you? Why are you showing grace to somebody when they're your enemy and they're hurting you? It will be an opportunity to show the grace of God to people. And to share the gospel with people. Through this we'll be storing up for ourselves treasures in heaven it says in verse 37. There will be reward attached to this. For not a moment of this goes unnoticed by the Lord. And one day we will receive commendation from him. For operating in such a way. But more even than that we will have the immediate reward. Of knowing in our hearts that right now in any given situation. We are imitating God most high himself. What an opportunity that is. My friends, this kingdom is so upside down to the kingdom of the world, isn't it? It's so different in the way we're called to walk in it. And this then is where the story begins. The reality that as Christ's followers, we're to love our enemies. And then number two, the second part of the story, the second part of the disposition towards others is this. As Christ's followers, 
We're to judge others charitably. As Christ's followers, we are to judge others charitably. It's important to note the net at this point isn't just talking about our enemies, it's talking about those even close to us, our family and our church and our friends. It's everybody in our life. And we're called to judge everybody charitably. Look with me at verse 37 and 38. Jesus says, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. It's important to note as we unpack these verses together that what Jesus is not saying here is that we should never, as Christians, judge others. I mean, honestly, this is one of the most misunderstood and misrepresented verses, I think, in the entire Bible. It's sometimes used completely inappropriately to explain to Christians, you should never, ever judge others. Judge not at any point. When in fact, that's not actually what it's saying at all. That is a misapplication and a misunderstanding of this verse. Judgment and judging others by way of discernment and evaluation, as Jesus explains at different times, is actually just a normal and necessary part of life. It's always going to be put in situations where we need to discern and evaluate others. For example, if we're buying a car or buying a product, We need to discern or evaluate the trustworthiness of the seller, do we not? We need to consider, is this stolen goods? Is this actually going to do what what they're saying is to do? We use discernment and evaluation in that to ensure that we not steward our money unwisely before the Lord. If there's a candidate that we're considering for pastoral ministry, we're to discern and evaluate whether God has actually called them to that. There's certain criteria in scripture that talk about what it means to be a pastor and an elder. And so we're called to discern and evaluate, aren't we? To work out, is this somebody that fulfills those things? Or, for example, when we're considering friendships. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 33 tells us that bad company corrupts good character. Well, the assumption then is we need to actually think about the company that we're keeping. We need to discern and evaluate, is this bad company for me? Is this helping me? Am I influencing them or in reality are they influencing me? Judgment is a necessary and normal part of the Christian life. And where judgment is necessary and necessary, the Bible makes it clear that we are to always then judge others charitably now what it means to judge others charitably which it explains right here is this that we should always be striving to believe the best and think the best and assume the best about others until we have evidence to prove otherwise whatever the situation we come across and whatever situation is coming our way we strive to think the best and believe the best and assume the best about that individual unless or until we have very clear evidence to prove otherwise. That's why Jesus says in verse 38, with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. We're to judge each other then with grace and mercy and kindness to think the best. And if we don't, they won't think the best about you. 
How do you want to be judged? He's already told us in verse 31 the golden rule that we're to do to others as you would want them to do to you. My friends, how would you want somebody to assume about you in a situation? Do you want them to think the best and believe the best? But if you want that, you need to do that to them. We need in our lives to judge others charitably, striving to believe the best and think the best until we have evidence to prove otherwise. We need to measure to others the same grace and mercy and kindness that we want to receive of them in their judgments of us. Jesus isn't talking here then about not judging others. No, judging is a part of life and it should always be charitable. But what Jesus is talking about here, be very clear in this, what he is forbidding here and disallowing here is sinful judging. Or more specifically, if you will, uncharitable judging. It's judgment then that thinks the worst and assumes the worst and believes the worst about someone without valid or sufficient evidence, but all too quickly then a result reaches a condemning conclusion. It doesn't think the best, then it thinks the worst. It doesn't believe the best, it believes the worst. It doesn't assume the best about a person in a situation, it assumes the worst. And no data is gathered. Instead, a judgment is made, and it isn't a positive judgment, it's a negative one, a condemning one. And what Jesus is helping us see here is that should not even be named among us. Friends, to help us see what that judgment looks like then, I want to tell you about the story of a lady called Anne. Anne is mentioned in Ken Sandy's wonderful article entitled The Danger of Playing God. Just listen to a moment so that we can understand what this type of uncharitable judgment looks like. I knew it. I knew he was too proud to take criticism, thought Anne. And now I have proof. On the previous Sunday, Anne had dropped a prayer card in the offering plate, asking her pastor to stop in and pray with her when she went to the hospital for some minor surgery. When he failed to come by, she called the church secretary and learned that her pastor had already been to the hospital that day to see another church member. So he has no excuse, she thought. He was in the building and knew I needed support, but still he ignored me. He's resented me ever since I told him his sermons lacked practical application. Now he's getting back at me, ignoring my spiritual needs, and he calls himself a shepherd. After brooding over his rejection for three days, and sat down Saturday evening and wrote a letter confronting her pastor about his pride defensiveness and hypocrisy and she sealed the envelope she could not help thinking as she sealed the envelope about the conviction he would surely feel when he opened his mail the moment she walked into church the next morning one of the deacons hurried over to her and i need to apologize to you when i took the prayer card out of the offering plate last week i accidentally left your card with some pledge cards I didn't notice my mistake until last night when I was totaling up all the pledges. I am so sorry I didn't get your request to the pastor in time. Before Anne could reply to the deacon, her pastor then approached her with a warm smile 
I said, Anne, I was just thinking about your comment about practical application as I finished up my sermon yesterday. I really hope you noticed the difference in today's message. I've worked hard on that part of it. Anne was speechless. And all she could think about was the letter that she had just dropped into the mailbox three blocks from the church. Oh my goodness. I mean, as you hear that story, it is cringeworthy, isn't it? Everything in you just dies a little bit on the inside. As you think, what an awkward and difficult conversation that is going to be between Anne and her pastor when that mail arrives on his desk. It's cringeworthy as you imagine the moment and the embarrassment and the potential pain that that's going to cause. I mean, sometimes I think we, we think that pastors just walk around with some like armored suits on. They have a special skin where they can just take anything. But in truth, pastors are just the same. In fact, often they're actually very thin-skinned. They're very sensitive, which is why they even went into shepherding ministry because they really care about people. Just imagine then the cringeworthy moment when that mailbox arrives and he's reading the mail and that conversation that is going to come as a result. It is cringeworthy as we think about that moment between Anne and her pastor. But it is also, I think, a cringeworthy story. Because in all honesty, there is a tendency and a temptation towards uncharitable judgment in all our hearts, isn't there? A tendency and a temptation to assume that we know what's going on here. That we know the motives and that we're going to respond accordingly. A tendency and a temptation to think the worst and believe the worst and assume the worst. Just the details might change and might be different. And so, for example, someone delays in answering a text or WhatsApp message. We sent it earlier in the day. We waited three hours. We haven't heard a thing in response. So we send it again. And for the rest of the evening, still not a thing. And so by the time we get to the night, we are convinced in ourselves or assuming that they must be avoiding us. Maybe they're ghosting us or shunning us. And in the evening, as we lie in bed, we start to make conclusions about where our relationship is at, all because they never got back to my text message. But could it not just be that they didn't get the text message? Or their phone isn't working properly? Or they've had a very full day? Or maybe worse, maybe they're in hospital. And that's why they haven't been able to respond. Or the child that fails to yet again complete their chores on time. You have had to speak to them about this three times in the last three months. And by your standards, that's like way, way too many times. And so once again, they have failed to complete their chores. And so you conclude very quickly that this is just another example of their laziness and their sinfulness and their disobedience towards you as their parent. And you've decided that when they get home later that day, they are going to have it. Before God, they are going to have it. You are going to help them see their sin and change right there and then. And yet, could it not be that they just didn't realize that was the chore they were on this week? Or that they've got distracted. Or maybe during COVID lockdown, they're not, you're not the only ones that's been really tempted and affected by that. They are too. And as you ask questions of them then, you realize, oh my, they're really going through it too. 
And yet that doesn't come into your mind because you've already decided in the morning they're lazy and they're disobedient and they're having it. Or what about the lady at church? She often seems unfriendly and distant. You've noticed her a few times. She comes like five minutes before the service. She leaves like five minutes after the service. And every time you notice her, she seems unfriendly and distant. And so you conclude in your mind, well, she must be unfriendly and distant because she's proud or aloof. She's probably got no desire to really settle into this church. So no desire to make friends with anybody. So if she wants to be distant, I'll be distant from her. I'll keep out of the way of her. And we conclude she's proud and untrusted in friendships. But could it not be that actually she's walked through a situation in her life or maybe even still walking through a situation that just makes her feel very awkward around people? Could it not be that she actually needs our care and help and attention to actually break down those barriers so we can win her heart and pull her in? Or what about the member of your gospel community? They haven't been for a while. You've texted them at different points, but they still don't really come. And so we conclude in our hearts, well, that's it. They've moved on. They probably don't want any friendships anymore. They're probably looking for another church. For all I know, they're clearly not looking for this one. They're not looking to have friendships. And so we conclude that they don't recognize the importance of meeting together. They're not interested in meeting together. If they're not interested in that, then you're not interested in them. But could it not be that actually there's things going on in their life that you know nothing about? And if you continue to show them grace and mercy and care, that you might be able to uncrack things in their life and find there's a whole other side to them that you know nothing of. Could it not be that they actually just need our care and our patience and our help right now? See, the reason why Anne's story is so cringeworthy is because whether we like it or not, the details may change, but there is a tendency and temptation in all our hearts, differing degrees at different times, albeit. To run towards sinful judgment, isn't there? And yet, my friends, I want you to understand this. Few things will do more harm to your families and your friendships and the church and the kingdom of God than sinfully judging others. Few things in life will cause more harm and hurt and heartache in friendships and families in the church than sinfully judging them, assuming the worst, thinking the worst, probably telling others the worst about them, your conclusions on a given situation. Few things will bring more harm to the kingdom of God and to the reality of friendships than that type of judgment. And so Jesus looks us in the eye in verse 37 and says, judge not. Don't judge that way. Refuse to judge others that way. Never judge others uncharitably. But instead, measure to them the judgment by which you want to be measured. Judge them charitably with grace and mercy. Think in the best and assume in the best and believe in the best. And think like that and operate like that until you have evidence to prove otherwise. And you know, on that, just to finish, it's important to understand that even if evidence does come to the contrary, even if we are in the midst of a situation and having thought the best and believed the best, we do still find out that actually we have been on the end of their sin. 
we are observing sin in their life towards others and we feel led then by the Lord to go and address them in that and talk to them about that in love. Even then, the tone and disposition of the way we we do that needs to be full of grace and mercy and kindness. That's not my idea. It's Jesus's. Look with me. Verses 39 to 42, just to close. It says, he also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, (coughs) will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye. When you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. My friends, his point is even when you find there is evidence to the contrary and that you have been on the end of sin or you do see them sinning towards others, it isn't going to work to go in all guns blazing. See? I've told you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have it. They're going to have it. I need to adjust them. I need to help them. And I need to help them oh so clearly. No, Jesus said, you go in with that stinking attitude. It's going to be the blind leading the blind. You're not going to be able to help them at all. It is a total waste of time. You're going to go busy trying to get the speck out of your friend's eye. You don't realize that you're going to be smacking them in the face with your log all the time. You're not going to be getting anywhere. No, even when evidence comes to the contrary and you realize, I need to talk to them about this, even then it needs to be done with grace and love and kindness and mercy. Why? Well, because that's the way God in his grace and mercy and love functions towards us and we're to do to others as we would want them to do to us. Mm. My friends, this kingdom... It's so different to the kingdom of the world, isn't it? And so what a most important lesson this is. This is indeed a life-changing, a life-forming message, I believe. And so no wonder that God wants to burn it into us as with a hot iron. It's so important that as Christ's followers, we're to love our enemies. That our disposition towards those who hate us is kind and merciful and gracious. And that as Christ followers, we always judge others charitably with grace and mercy and love. Thinking the best, assuming the best, believing the best. Until we have evidence to the contrary. You know, maybe at the end of this message, you're thinking, man, this just sounds really, really hard. I don't know how I'm possibly going to do this. I have no idea how I'm actually going to function this way in my life. It sounds so ridiculously hard. My friends, I want to encourage you. It is not just hard. In and of yourself, it is impossible. There is no possible way in your own strength and in your own power and your own means you can walk in obedience to this text. No way. John Owen simply says the duties God requires of us are simply not in proportion to the strength we possess in ourselves. Oh, how perceptive and how wonderfully true that is. The duties God requires of us are simply not in proportion to the strength we possess. We simply can't do this by ourselves. 
But the good news of scripture, my friends, is we don't have to. Jesus himself says, I will be with you till the end of the age. Jesus himself tells us that the same spirit that rose him from the dead now resides in you in power and grace and splendor. We cannot do this by ourselves. But what we can say, like the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens So my friends, I want to encourage you. Keep looking to Jesus. Keep walking with Jesus. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. We can't do this by ourselves. But we can do all things through him who strengthens us. So may we truly rely and put our full trust in his precious work. Let's pray. Lord, it is true that we cannot do this by ourselves. But Lord, I thank you that you are with us. Lord, would you help us to apply this word in our lives? Lord, I thank you that there is forgiveness at Calvary for the many times where we have not done this. For the times that maybe even now Satan is tempting us with to look more and more evidence that you're pathetic. Lord, I thank you that your grace is sufficient for those moments. I thank you that your mercy and grace washes us clean again and again. But Lord, as we rise and go forth and follow thee, oh Lord, help us to walk in this upside down kingdom by your grace and for your glory. We cannot do this by ourselves. But with you, we can do all things. In Jesus' name, amen.